The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 18th. In today's news, new research suggests infants are far more vulnerable to the coronavirus than we thought. Europe is closing its borders. They may be hard to reopen. And Joe Biden sweeps the primaries in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. But first, the big idea. More than 6,000 cases of the coronavirus have now been reported across the United States, including for the first time at least one patient in every state. Our country's death toll has surpassed 100, a grim milestone that demonstrates the pandemic's widespread and that experts expect to increase rapidly. We analyzed the first 100 fatalities. Many appear to have had underlying health conditions. Some had diabetes, kidney failure, hypertension, or pulmonary ailments. Nearly all, about 85%, were older than 60. It's unclear how some of them contracted the disease, but more than a third were living in residential care facilities when they became ill. Now, more than 60 American healthcare workers are infected. Hundreds more have had to self-quarantine because they're likely infected, taking them off the front lines of the response. Now the Trump administration is pushing to send direct cash payments to Americans in the coming weeks to help them cope with the economic ravages of the coronavirus. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said yesterday that the overall price tag of the package the administration wants could be around $1 trillion. Americans could get a check for $1,000 or more in the coming weeks, an idea political leaders in both parties are getting behind. Trump says he wants the checks to get in the mail within two weeks. Mnuchin told lawmakers that if they fail to act immediately, the unemployment rate in this country could spike to nearly 20% from the roughly 3.5% level it notched last month. A projection released last night by the U.S. Travel Association, a lobbying group that's looking for bailouts, says the United States is expected to lose 4.6 million travel-related jobs this year as the corona outbreak leaves an $809 billion blow to the economy. Furthermore, the American Hotel and Lodging Association says that 4 million jobs have been eliminated already or are on the verge of being lost in the next few weeks. United Airlines announced this morning that it will cut flights by 60% because of a drop-off in demand. Boeing is asking for a $60 billion federal bailout for aerospace manufacturing. The Federal Reserve has launched a special fund to keep credit flowing, yet another emergency measure as the world spirals toward a recession. The central bank will buy up significant amounts of commercial paper, the short-term loans that businesses rely on for funding to pay bills and other expenses. Stocks rallied on that announcement, with the Dow jumping more than 500 points. The Fed did the same thing during the Great Recession and ended up purchasing about $350 billion worth of these loans, about 20% of the entire market. There's a deluge of other news related to the federal government's response that would have been unthinkable a few weeks ago. The U.S. government, is in active talks with Facebook, Google, and a wide array of tech companies and health experts about using location data gleaned from your phone to combat the coronavirus, including tracking whether people are keeping one another at safe distances. Public health experts are interested in the possibility that private sector companies could compile the data, they say, in anonymous aggregated form, which could then be used to map the spread of infections. Analyzing trends in people's smartphones could prove to be a powerful tool. 
but it's also an approach that should leave Americans deeply uncomfortable, given the risks for abuse and the sensitivity most of us feel about having details of our daily whereabouts shared with the federal government. The future of surveillance capitalism is now. Then, late last night, the director of the Office of Personnel Management resigned in protest with no notice after just five months on the job, leaving the agency that oversees workplace policy for 2.1 million civil servants with no leader as it's supposed to be spearheading a major part of the federal response. Dale Cabanis resigned in frustration following tension with the White House Budget Office and more recently with its newly configured staffing office and a political appointee that the office installed at OPM in the last few weeks. Cabanis thought that she was being micromanaged and her authority wasn't respected. As the human resources manager of the entire federal workforce, Cabanis felt she was being blocked from communicating clearly and in a timely fashion with agency managers on how they should respond to the growing coronavirus threat. Guidance to managers on when they should send staff home to telework has been vague and came weeks after U.S. health officials urged Americans to work from home and minimize contact with others. Even now, federal managers say privately they haven't received clear instructions from the Trump administration on how to manage their workforce. And federalism, one of the secret sauces of our system, means in this case an uneven patchwork of reactions to the virus across the country and even within states. Consider Mark Esty. He spent yesterday laying off 100 cooks, waiters, and dishwashers because of a decree by the city of Reno, Nevada to close the two restaurants he owns that were thriving just days ago. But less than an hour down the road in Nevada's Carson Valley, the threat of the coronavirus has inspired no restrictions. So Estes' three other restaurants served dinner last night in crowded dining rooms. Those employees continue to work. The divide in responses shows some signs of narrowing. Nevada's governor announced the shutdown of restaurants, bars, and casinos late last night. And states that have been acting swiftly are cracking down even further. North Carolina's outer banks are setting up checkpoints to keep non-residents out of the barrier islands. New York's mayor says he's considering ordering all 9 million residents of the city to stay at home, as San Francisco did the day before yesterday. But the gaps are increasingly drawing the ire of state and local officials who have acted decisively to halt the spread. They worry their efforts will be for naught if their neighbors don't follow suit. In Oklahoma, where Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican, faced ridicule after tweeting a photo of himself and his family at a packed restaurant on Saturday night, officials declared a state of emergency on Sunday and closed all schools on Monday. But the state has not taken more drastic measures, including closing restaurants or bars, despite the urging of the Oklahoma State Medical Association. Meanwhile, Norman and several other big cities in Oklahoma have done so. In other Republican-run states, governors have resisted restrictive action while allowing mayors to take their own initiative. For example, in Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee has not ordered restaurants and bars to shut down, but Nashville Mayor John Cooper, a Democrat, closed bars in the city and has reduced restaurant capacity. Right beyond the city of Nashville's limits, it's a totally different story. An Irish pub in Franklin, which is just outside Nashville, said 40 people were in the bar's dining room for St. Patrick's Day lunch yesterday, and the owner said that a lot of her patrons were drinking green beer and had come in from Nashville because all the bars there were closed. Talk about community spread. And Kansas just announced that it is closing all of its schools for the rest of the academic year, but 11 states are still sending their students to in-person classes this week. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, in the nightmare of this coronavirus pandemic, 
parents have been able to take comfort in one thing. Early reports that the virus mysteriously spares children, even as it often causes critical illness in the elderly. But a new paper in the journal Pediatrics, based on studying 2,100 young people in China, provides the most extensive evidence yet of the spread of virus in children. There's bad news and good news. The study provides confirmation that infections are in fact generally less severe in kids, with more than 90% having mild to moderate disease or even being asymptomatic. But there's worrisome information about one subset, infants, and suggests, according to the study, that children may be a critical factor in spreading the disease. The first thing to know is that children are getting infected across all age groups and genders. Among the patients in that study, half were from the province that includes Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, while the others were from bordering areas. They ranged in age from newborns to 18, with the median age being seven years. According to the analysis by Shanghai Children's Medical Center, half the cases were mild. They were marked by the typical symptoms of a cold, fever, fatigue, cough, sore throat, runny nose, and sneezing. The other 40% that had a moderate infection had pneumonia with frequent fever and cough, mostly dry cough, followed by a wetter cough. Some had wheezing, but no obvious shortness of breath. Severe cases were rare, only about 5%, as were those that required critical care, half of 1%. The severe cases began with early respiratory symptoms, which were sometimes accompanied by gastrointestinal issues. Around one week in, the kids had more difficulty breathing. Those cases sometimes quickly progressed to critical illnesses with acute respiratory distress or failure, which in turn sometimes led to organ dysfunction, heart failure, or kidney injury. The researchers think children may have been more isolated at home after the outbreak first began and therefore had fewer opportunities to be exposed to the pathogens. They're also speculating that there's something in children's biology, a cell receptor that binds to the virus that might be less sensitive. Another theory is that children often experience colds and other respiratory infections in the winter, so they may have come into the season with higher levels of antibodies, which are protective, than adults did. But we're hearing more and more stories about youngish people dropping dead because they had pre-existing conditions they didn't even realize they had. For example, yesterday, a 21-year-old Spanish youth coach died after coming down with the coronavirus, and it turned out he also had a form of leukemia, which had been previously undiagnosed. Although young people appear to have milder or no symptoms, pre-existing conditions, including, again, conditions like diabetes or asthma, things that make it harder to breathe, seriously complicate recovery from the virus. This 21-year-old coach sought medical attention when he began struggling to breathe, and then he was found to have pneumonia and the virus. Number two, leaders of the 26 European countries that are part of the EU in what is normally a free movement zone agreed yesterday to shut their external borders to most non-residents for the first time. But the bigger problem is that they're shutting their borders on one another. The about face over there is proving about as disruptive as it would be if American states imposed border controls on one another. Since Europe's countries are no longer built for self-sufficiency and no country manufactures or grows everything it needs, the effect of the growing internal blockade could quickly become catastrophic. For example, trucks trying to enter Poland from Germany yesterday were backed up 25 miles as Polish border guards checked the temperatures of drivers, overall health records, and documents before allowing them through. Meanwhile, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, whose only connection to the rest of the EU is through Poland, have had to mount a rescue operation by air and sea to help their citizens get home. The Baltic states have deployed the Latvian National Airline and even chartered ferries so that their nationals can scramble to German ports and sail around Poland, which is blocking them. 
leaders of the EU institutions in Brussels, watching these national leaders erect walls, have been desperately trying to keep the internal borders open, at least partially. One major risk is that medical supplies necessary to combat the coronavirus are piling up in trucks that have been stopped at national frontiers. France and Germany last week threw up political borders around crucial medical equipment produced in their territories, banning the export of protective gear, including masks, to any other country, even Italy, which is struggling with shortages. People are dying because of them. After entreaties by EU leaders, those countries, France and Germany, loosened their bans, but not before the message was sent loud and clear to Italians. In a crisis, don't count on your neighbors to help you. Here at home, the Trump White House is developing a plan to impose emergency border controls that would immediately send migrants who cross illegally back into Mexico, including those who arrive seeking asylum. Homeland Security agencies are working at the logistics of the new measures, which would also be paired with new restrictions at the Canadian border and are expected to be announced in the coming days. We're told they won't apply to U.S. citizens, legal residents, and their families, or the flow of commercial goods. Number three, the Democratic presidential race passed a point of no return last night with Joe Biden firmly in control of his party's nominating contest over Bernie Sanders. Biden won big in the primaries in Arizona, Florida, and Illinois. Voter turnout was up compared with 2016 in Florida and Arizona, thanks to lots of early voting, but down big in Illinois, which had the lowest level of early voting of the three states, an indication of the impact of the virus on election day turnout. Postponements of coming primaries continued to mount across the country, causing the nominating season to be extended into later in June. The final primaries could now come only weeks before the Democratic National Convention is scheduled in Milwaukee, if it's held as planned. From the start of this whole contest, March 17th was circled on the calendars of many strategists and staffers as the day the contest could be settled. Roughly 60% of all pledged delegates have now been allocated. That turned out to be accurate. For all practical purposes, the contest between Biden and Sanders is over. Numerically, the former VP is still well short of a majority of delegates needed to win on the first ballot. But the reality is that it would take a radical change in fortunes for Sanders to start winning primaries by the margins he would need to catch up. Sanders and his wife, Jane, are expected to reach a decision together about the future of their campaign, taking input from advisors, but ultimately making the call on their own. Many Democrats are waiting anxiously to see what Bernie says later today about the future of the race, if anything. Sanders is here in Washington, where the Senate's trying to hash out legislation to combat the coronavirus. Pressure from Democrats to unify against a president they revile has intensified because of this sense of national crisis that could make running a doomed race seem less appropriate. But a Sanders campaign official says that the changing nature of the competition with no more in-person events in the near future and perhaps no more primaries for the time being could be an important factor in getting Sanders to stay in the race. Sanders could be freed up to advance his cause outside the traditional pressures of the horse race should he opt to stay in. Yet again, obvious opportunities for Sanders to turn the tide have all but run out. And the first congressional incumbent went down in a 2020 primary last night. In Illinois, Congressman Dan Lipinski, one of the last anti-abortion Democrats in Congress, lost his bid for a ninth term to a liberal challenger, Marie Newman, in the Chicago suburbs. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 18th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.